We're doing a series in the book of Acts. And so turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And the purpose of the series is really twofold. We're doing a series to try to teach you guys what the book of Acts actually says. But we're also trying to teach you guys how to study the Bible for yourselves. And so what you have at your tables, you've got a card at your tables that looks like this. And what this is, we put this together... Um, we wanted to ask some questions, put some questions on a card that you guys could put in your Bibles. And basically these questions um, really can be asked of any Bible text. And so it's a way for you to almost interview a Bible passage. Like whenever you're reading any passage in the Scriptures, you can go through these questions and look at them and, and really figure out some meaning, some interpretation for your own life. Um, these are not difficult questions. They're fairly straightforward, but they do take some time. And so our purpose is to try to teach you guys like how to feed yourselves spiritually. Because I'm not quite sure we get this fully today, but do we realize that the church today, if you look at the, the church landscape of even our nation, the church today is often seen as a restaurant. It really is. It's seen as a restaurant. Um, people like me are considered like the cook. Like, I make spiritual meals for you, and you come here and you eat them, and if they taste bad, you go somewhere else, um, that sort of thing. So our desire here is to teach you guys how to feed yourselves spiritually. And so we're using the book of Acts to hopefully do that for you. So we ask you questions. That's why we do questions at your tables, because if I'm the only person that ever has anything to say here, that's a problem. And so we're trying to get you to connect with each other, but also connect with the Word of God. And so we do these questions for that reason. So uh, put that in your Bible and keep that for a time when you can study on your own. Now bring it to speed of where we've been. We've been in the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 1 was about uh, Jesus when he had left his disciples. He said, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Then he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come and empower you. And he did just that. It was called the Day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. It was this dramatic moment where the wind started blowing. Um, people were speaking in language that they, they never had learned before. And so people that didn't know the language of the, of the disciples were able to hear the gospel because the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful, powerful way. And that was to be a symbol of the gospel spreading immediately to the ends of the earth in that moment. At one point in Acts chapter 2, it says that Peter stood up and he preached a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. So the church went from about 120 people to about 3,000 people in one sermon. TBC is about 3,000 on a Sunday. Imagine the church going from 120 to 3,000 after one sermon. Pretty amazing. After that, uh, we're now in chapter 3. So what I want you guys to do is to... uh, First of all, read this at your tables first. Does somebody go ahead and read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10? And then we'll read as a group together. Go ahead and read it at your tables. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to read as a group together now before you do your first questions. 
Uh, because if you're, like, if you're like most people, whenever you're reading the Bible, about three verses in, it begins to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. And you wonder, like, what am I actually reading? Or you start thinking about your dog or something that happened this week. And so we're going to read it. Uh, repetition is key when it comes to studying the Word of God. So we're going to look at it again and read it one more time as a group. Verse 1, follow with me. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Do questions one through three at your tables. Okay, I want you for a moment, for a moment, imagine you are this man. In the fourth chapter of Acts, it tells us that this man was in his 40s. So imagine you're 40 years old, and you have been crippled since birth. Every time your friends, uh, when you were a kid, went outside to play sports in the, uh, in the yard or the dirt, whatever they had back then, you could not go. You're stuck. Every time you wanted, every time you wanted to have a cup of water, any time you needed something, someone had to bring it to you. Now I've got a daughter who's uh, uh, almost about five months old now. I've been saying she's like three and a half months for the last two months. Three and a half months just kind of rolls out easily. So um, we carry her everywhere, obviously. And but imagine. That you're, you remain in this state of infancy where, where you can't ever walk for yourself, take care of yourself. You become a teenager, and all your friends are, are going out doing fun stuff. Your friends are um, hanging out together. They're playing sports. And you can't do any of it because you're confined, because you're, you're crippled. Imagine as you start to get older, and your friends start to get married and move on and start to have families. And... If you're this man, you start to become isolated even more and more because you realize that someone may not want to be with you because of your, the nature of what you've got. Start to get worried. Start to feel isolated. Everything about your life centers around the fact that you're, you have this disability. Your friends have to pick you up and carry you everywhere, even as a grown man. Imagine the feeling that you would feel having to ask a friend just to walk, go from here to over there. Hey, can you, can you take me over there? No wheelchairs. They probably had a mat that they carried him around on, which would not have been light. 
when I was in college, I, I worked at a, at a uh, golf club as a waiter. And uh, there was this room upstairs in the golf club. There was no elevator to get to it. There was just a row of stairs to get there. So there was a, uh, a meeting that took place every week called the Rotary Club. And these men would get together. They would have this, I don't even know what they meant for, some kind of secret society, I guess. But, uh, but they'd meet for Rotary Club. And um, the guy that was like the uh, secretary of this club was in a wheelchair. And we had no elevator, so we had to get this guy up the stairs. And so as a waiter, it was basically my responsibility, along with another guy that worked with me, to carry this guy out of his chair, up the stairs, and put him in a wheelchair that we had at the top of the steps just for him. And I'll tell you what, it was me and this one other guy walking upstairs, his arm over my shoulder, one arm under his leg, and us carrying this guy with just dead weight, walking upstairs. And I was terrified I would drop this guy, and he would sue me. And we get to the top of the steps, and every time he just, you could tell he just felt so bad that we had to carry this guy. You could tell he just felt so, in a sense, ashamed and guilty that, I'm sorry I'm putting you guys out like this, I apologize. I'm like, hey, don't, don't worry about it. Um, if I drop you, though, it's going to hurt. And uh, so we're walking up the stairs, and, and you can just tell that as this guy is, is being carried upstairs, he's kind of wincing in pain. He's not used to this movement. So imagine being this guy. Everywhere you have to go, someone has to take you there. And this is what this guy's life was like. Imagine the burden you feel toward, uh, for other people. Everything about your life centers around your crippled state. The only interaction you have with people is when they throw money at you outside the temple gate. And in that day, many of the Jews felt like when they gave money to the poor, that was earning favor with God. So people would even give money to this guy. Not out of compassion or care, but because they thought, if I do this good work, then God will love me. And this guy knew that to be the case for the Jews. So imagine being this guy, receiving money, knowing it's just out of obligation. Knowing it's just out of them them earning favor with God. No compassion, no real care, no humans care about you. This is this guy's life for 40 years. This is all he knew. This man, the text says this man placed himself outside this gate called Beautiful. Uh, Some uh, commentators believe that this was the gate where it was right outside the women's court. I guess there was a women's court to the temple. And so this guy knew where the money was. Because women, everyone knows, are more compassionate than men, right? Uh, Men see need and we're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. He can help himself. Women, however, for the most part, have more of a compassion streak, empathetic streak to them. Uh, this is true. Um, if you know my wife, uh, if, if, if I'm driving down the road by myself and I see a dog, I'll go, there's a dog, and keep driving. My wife, however, she'll be driving down the road, she'll see a dog, and she'll go, Eah! and she'll get out of the car, she'll walk over to the dog, and say, come here, doggy, come here, doggy, come here, come here. Why don't you get in my car? And so she'll take this dog home, and she'll be like, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to pet you, I'm going to give you water when we get home. And, and so she comes in the house with this dog. This has happened at least five times since we've been married, I think. And uh, she comes in with this dog, and I'm going, so what's up with this new dog? We already have two dogs in the house. We can't have a third dog. But, but Dave, it just it, it followed me home. 
I'm like, I saw you driving it in your car. So how did it follow you home exactly, right? And so uh, she'll spend time on the phone trying to get people to adopt this dog. And then about by day three, if we haven't found someone to adopt the dog, she'll give me this look. Okay? And it's this look. I've seen it many times before where she'll just go, Dave, I just feel like God wants us to keep this dog. And I'm like, oh, so you're bringing God into this. So, so the guilt is just layered on me, and I still say no. Okay? And so my wife has this compassion streak when it comes to animals and people that I sometimes just don't have. And so this guy, he knows where to position himself, where to get money, because the women are coming in and they're going to have compassion on this guy. They're going to give him money because they're going to feel sorry for his state. This guy knows where to get the most money at the temple. Secondly, people are going to feel more obligated because they're going in to worship God. Well, I'm going to worship God. Might as well give to this poor guy right here on the side of the road. Because people saw him as just an obligation much of the time. So this man sat in the dirt and he begged for money just so he could eat. But here's what happens. This one day, Peter and John, as they're on the way to the temple to pray, they take notice. You see, so often we can be on our way to do spiritual things... And we can walk right past people in need and not take notice. And God wants us to take notice because He takes notice. God wants you and I to take notice of people in need, not just financially, but relationally, because He takes notice. When I was in, uh, in college, I was an intern at a church, and, uh, and I was on my way to a staff meeting. It was, it was me. Another intern, it was the junior high pastor and the high school pastor, and I was an intern. And so we'd meet every, every week at, on Tuesday at 2 o'clock at the church. So I'm already kind of late for the meeting, so I'm driving down this road a little bit fast, but not able to speed them, of course. And uh, on the way to the meeting, and um, I see this lady on the side of the road who looks kind of distraught, has a flat tire, has a small child standing next to her on the side of the road. Everything in me is saying, you need to stop, you need to stop. Stop and help her. This other voice clicks in and goes, but you're going to be late, but you're going to be late, but you're going to be late. And I drive right past her and I keep going. As I'm driving, I start thinking to myself, she's probably a serial killer. So it's probably good I didn't stop, you know. And I get to the church. I walk in. I'm the first one there. Ten minutes later, the youth pastor walks in. Looks kind of distraught, and he's like, man, he goes, I feel so bad. I just drove past this lady on the side of the road, and she needed help, and I didn't stop and help her. And I'm like, dude, you did the right thing. Because I didn't either, okay? And so we're sitting there waiting for the junior high guy to show up. Ten minutes later, he shows up. He's looking all dirty. He walks in, and he's like, guys, sorry I'm late. Lay on the side of the road needs some help, and I stopped to help her change her tire. And we're like, I'm such a horrible, horrible person. I'm sitting there thinking, like, this is the Good Samaritan story, like, in real life. And I was not the Good Samaritan in the story, right? 
And so, but there's so often we are on our way to do spiritual things. Go to a meeting. Go to a prayer group. Go to a small group. Come to church Sunday morning. Sing some worship songs. And we walk right past people that are in need. And I don't necessarily just mean people that have financial need. I'm talking about people that are in this room that have need. People in this room that that are relationally isolated or may not feel like they fit in here, we walk right past those people sometimes to do our spiritual thing. And the book of James is clear. James tells us, he says, True religion in the sight of our God is to care for widows and orphans, people that are in need. And so the things that we do here, this this is not impressed God. God's not impressed by us singing songs even necessarily giving money to someone to help someone in need, but he wants you to help people in need that he places right along your path. That's what he wants us to do. This is exactly what Peter and John do in this story. So God wants us to take notice because he takes notice of people like these. So on this day, as people walk by throwing money at this poor, crippled man, Peter and John stop. And they they look directly at him. Something I'm sure that caused him shame. And with his eyes downcast, but his hand outstretched, Peter raises his voice and he says, Look at us! Look at us! And for a moment, this Man gets a taste of what it's like to be human. Because people do not often look this man in the eyes. Then Peter says this. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And Peter takes the man's outstretched hand, the same hand used for begging, and pulls the man to his feet. And for the first time in this man's life, he feels strength enter into his legs and to his knees, his feet and his toes. He feels that sensation where, you know, when your foot's asleep and you're trying to hit it to wake it up? He feels that sensation through the lower half of his body as blood starts to flow where it never had gone before. And And he stands up to his feet for the first time in his entire life, able to stand on his own. And at that moment, Peter lets go. And the man stands by himself. Now in the Bible, a miracle is never just a miracle. A miracle is never just a trick or a magic show. Every miracle in Scripture has some kind of spiritual analogy that's behind it. So I want you guys to answer uh, questions four and five at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, I want to hear from you guys on these two questions. Help me with that fourth question. What did you guys come up with with number four? How is it a picture of the gospel and salvation? Yes. Excellent. Excellent answer. So as you said, 
in the same way that the man is crippled from birth. You and I are crippled spiritually from birth. You and I are born into sin. We are sons of Adam, the first sinner. And so we are born into sin. We're crippled from birth spiritually. And when you you guys encounter Jesus, it's as if new life has been breathed into your body and your soul and your spirit. It's like new life has been breathed into you so you can become a new person. You're transformed at at the time of salvation. This is a picture of what happens with this man. Secondly, this man is... Is, is bankrupt, he is poor. In the same way, you and I are bankrupt towards God before salvation. We have nothing to offer God. We are completely helpless spiritually before God until Jesus changes us, transforms us, saves us. Also, uh, question number five. What did you guys get for question five? Any ideas on that question? I'll read it again so you know what we're talking about. In the end of the story, the man gets way more than he asked for. In what ways does God often give us something different than what we ask for? What do you think? What feedback on that question? Everyone all at once. Yes? Excellent answer. Excellent. Uh, anyone else? You said it so well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want you to think back to when you first came to Christ. Um, many of you may have come to Christ with the idea that God's going to make certain parts of your life better. He's going to improve... Uh, your dating relationship will improve your uh, future chance to have a dating relationship. He'll, he'll improve your, um, your grades. He'll improve this. He'll improve that. You may have come to Christ with this other agenda. But when you come to Christ and you realize what he really has for you, it's the most important thing, and it's spiritual healing. It's spiritual change. And so this man is saying, asking people to change his circumstances, And Peter says, how about I change you? And that's what God does for us. We come to God saying, God, change this or change that, change my circumstances. And Jesus wants to say to us, how about I change you? How about I change you in the midst of your circumstances instead? And he might change your circumstances as well. But that's kind of icing on the cake at this point. Because who you're becoming is the most important thing that God wants to do in your life. Look at uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 11 and 15. Here's what it says. Verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So this miracle causes great stir 
in this area, people come running to the temple to see if it's really true. Is it true that this beggar on the side of the road that we've all known as the town beggar, is it true that he has really been healed and now is walking around praising God, singing praises to God? Now, here's what Peter could have done. Peter could have reveled in his success. As the crowd is coming, he could have raised his hands and been like, yes, yes, everyone look at me, look at what I did. Look at Peter. That's right. This is Peter, the same guy who walked on water. That's me. I healed this guy. He could have reveled in his success as the crowd came to see what happened. But instead, what does he do? He gives the glory to God. But he doesn't stop there. He gives the glory to Jesus. Then he, as this crowd is rushing onto him, Then he turns on the crowd and confronts the whole crowd. Yes, this is Peter. Remember? The big mouth. The guy who's bold, not afraid to say what's really on his mind. He then turns to the crowd and says, I'm giving glory to Jesus. And by the way, it's the same Jesus that you guys murdered. It's the same Jesus that you guys put to death on the cross. Now, can you imagine a crowd, a mob coming towards you, And in that moment, you confront the whole mob, like they're on the spot. This is what Peter is doing. He turns and says, you killed the author of life. You took life from the very God who gave you life. The very God who is sustaining your life in this moment. Yeah, you guys, you guys killed him. You killed him. And so you can imagine their reaction to this, right? Anger. Peter, we're going to kill you now, right? And so, so, so Peter confronts this crowd with these harsh, harsh words. But the reality of the gospel is that even though they killed Jesus, even though they took life, from the very person who gave them life, Jesus Christ. The reality of the gospel is that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He did not stay dead. The scriptures are clear that on the third day, Jesus was raised up, conquering sin and death for us. The author of life gave life back to his son to show that he is a God who takes great evil and he redeems it and he somehow works it for good. He took the greatest act of evil in history, the murder of his own innocent son, and he uses it to save you and me. And so after Peter confronts this crowd in amazing fashion, in verse 19, look at verse 19, he says this. He says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, the word repent is like a military word. It's like, it means about face. It means to be walking in this direction and then completely turn around and walk the other direction. Now, here's what repentance is. There's two aspects to repentance. The first is this, that you turn from sin. You're walking towards a life of sin. You turn from sin. Now, you don't just turn from sin and that's it. You turn from sin and turn towards Christ and start walking in a different direction towards Christ. This is the essence of what it means to repent, to turn from your sin. 
And so this is what Peter is calling these people to do. Now remember, he had just said to these people, you are the people who killed Jesus. Now he is saying, guess what? You can still repent. You can still turn from your sin, turn from your deception, and turn towards the very Jesus that you murdered. The very Jesus that you killed, you can turn towards Him and still seek forgiveness, still seek a relationship with Him. Peter is telling these people, there is no sin that you can commit that is unforgivable. There is nothing that you can do that is so bad that God will not allow you to come back into a relationship with Him. Even the people that murdered Him can still come back into a relationship with Him. And so so Peter is calling these people to repent. And this is the same forgiveness that Christ offers us. If you're not a believer and you're here this morning and you're saying, "There's, there's no way God can save me, I have done way too much bad in my short life, there's no way. Let me tell you, Peter says you're wrong. Peter says you're wrong. There is nothing you can do that if you turn towards Jesus, He will not forgive you for. Nothing. Nothing. And so what I want to do is I want to pull out a couple of ideas to to think through in, in relation to your own life. The first one is this. There must be conviction. Go to the next slide. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. What I mean by that is this. We live in a day and age where, where people just kind of have this warm fuzzy about God. Like I read a passage, I felt the warm fuzzy, therefore that's what my devotional life consists of. But when it comes to you really coming to know Christ as Savior, or as a Christian really growing in your walk with God, there has to be a point of conviction where you, you sense your guilt before God, a place where you sense your conviction before God. If that is not there, then growth cannot take place. Before you become a Christian, there has to be this sense of, I am guilty before God. I am lost. I am apart from Him right now. I'm walking my own direction. And there has to be this sense of conviction. Otherwise, you cannot really turn towards Christ. Why would you? Why would you if you don't sense your need for Him? You don't sense your need for forgiveness. And so you and I live in a day and age where we say things like, guilt is always bad, right? Guilt's always bad. I will say this, that as a Christian, there are times when, yes, guilt is bad and not from God. And you should not be living in a guilty state. If you are a Christian, you confess certain sins to God, and Satan or your own flesh is accusing you and making you feel guilty unnecessarily, and that stuff's in the past, and God's wiped the slate clean, then yes, that is bad guilt. But there is such a thing as good guilt. And Peter is calling that good guilt out of these people, saying, you killed Jesus. And if they're guilty of that, that's good guilt, because you've got to understand your guilt before you understand His grace. You've got to realize the depth of your guilt before you realize the depth and significance of God's grace. We live in a world where it's just grace, 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 and that's it. 
But keep in mind, if you don't understand the guilt over here, you'll never quite understand the grace offer over here. And so if you're, if you're someone who is wanting to come into a relationship with Christ, you've got to understand your lost state, the conviction, the guilt that sin causes. You see, guilt is good if it leads you to the cross. Guilt is good as long as it leads you to the cross. So it does not mean that you stay in your guilt and just kind of wallow around in it, but that you take it to Jesus and realize that that guilt is absorbed in the cross. That kind of guilt is a good kind of guilt, but it's not the kind of guilt that you stay in. It is not the kind of guilt and shame that you live in. So that's point number one. The second point is this. Next slide. Never let the fear of hypocrisy paralyze you from living boldly with your faith. As Peter spoke the gospel boldly, someone could have stood up and said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. Just weeks ago, you were denying that you even knew him. And now you're telling us to repent? You're a hypocrite, Peter. Peter denied Jesus just weeks before he preaches this sermon to a crowd. And now he's speaking boldly. And I wonder how many people in this room, as I say this, you allow your past sins to paralyze you from living boldly in the present with your faith. You allow things you've done in the past to keep you from living boldly with your faith now because you're afraid that someone will look at you and say, you're a hypocrite. And you're not quite sure what to do with that. And so you live kind of this paralyzed life, afraid to live your faith boldly because you're afraid of what people will call you. And when you look at the life of Peter, we see this man who says, yes, you're right, I sinned. I sinned back there when I denied him three times. I sinned before he went to the cross. But you know what? The grace that he offers me is the same grace that he offers you. And so it's a chance for someone who calls you a hypocrite to see the grace of Christ in your life and know it's the same grace that Christ offers them. I wonder how many of you in this room right now are paralyzed right now. You're spiritually paralyzed because you are afraid of someone calling you a hypocrite because if you've done things in the past that you feel like they're going to look at that and go, well, well, you're just like me. You're no different than I am. How can you call me out for this? Because you've done the exact same thing. And you've got to understand that although they are partly right, that you might, they maybe could call you that and be right about it. The bigger truth is the grace of Christ. You've got to let people see the grace of Christ, how it's worked itself out in your life, so they can know the same grace is offered to them. And so, to wrap up, we're going to uh, do questions 6 and 7 at your tables. When you're finished there, go ahead and pray. And we'll begin the impact meeting in just a moment. So go ahead and do questions 6 and 7, then go ahead and pray for your tables.